Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word that speaks powerfully to us, and we pray that uh, your spirit would uh, empower us and enable us to understand your word, apply it to our lives, and uh, live as disciples of Christ in the world. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've probably heard the old saying, haven't you, that rules are made to be broken. And I wonder if you've ever had that experience where uh, you um, get told there's something out of bounds and all of a sudden you kind of want to do it. Um, uh, I was thinking we've got a uh, Jess who works in museums and I was thinking uh, about her during the week because I thought, you know what, every time I go to like a museum or an art gallery or something, uh, I always just like want to touch one thing. Just like one exhibit or uh, the frame of one painting or, or just something uh, because there's all these signs around that say, do not touch, do not touch, do not touch. You'll ruin this historic piece of... Um, so sort of like, do I have that much power? Uh, and uh, uh, yes, rules are made to be broken and let me continue to confess my sins to you. Um, but what about... God's rules? What happens when it comes to, to, to God's standard for living or uh, as Paul describes it here, God's law? A, a really big question that you might have picked up as we've been working our way through Romans so far, which uh, is coming really to the forefront in chapter 7 of Romans today is, what is the place of the law in the life of the Christian, of all the rules and regulations of the Old Testament. How do, how do they apply to us? Uh, and what is their purpose for us as Christians today? And what we know so far about the law from uh, Paul uh, is that the, the law is something that uh, cannot save us, but in fact brings wrath, it brings judgment. So back in chapter 4, we read places like Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. And we saw that not only that, but uh, we, it brings the wrath because it reveals uh, the wrong that we are doing. Uh, but also we saw the example of Abraham that actually uh, we can never be saved by completely doing the right thing because that's impossible. Instead, we have to be saved through faith. And so in chapter 13, uh, we read, it's not through the law that Abraham received the promise but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And in chapter 6, which we looked at last week, Paul talked about how, as Christians, we are not under the law, but under grace. So chapter 6, verse 14, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And so if that's the case, that's the truth laid out in chapter 4 as Paul's uh, expanding his argument, what is, the, what, what, what is the role of the Christian? If we're not under the law but under grace, then what role does the law actually have in our lives as Christians? And, and in chapter 7, Paul is, I think, trying to, to put the law in its proper place and help us to have a, a right understanding of it. You see... The law is useful. The law is useful. It's useful for moral living. So chapter 7, verse 7 of our reading today, I would not have known what sin was 
had it not been for the law. So the law has a use, right? It tells us what sin is. It tells us how to live a morally good life. But the law does nothing to to save us from that sin, to sanctify us from those sinful desires because the law cannot deal with sin. And so Paul says, verse 8, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment or the law produced in me every kind of coveting for apart from the law, sin was dead. What Paul's reminding us throughout the book of Romans is, is that for our salvation or for our being made righteous, for our justification, these are the words that Paul uses, we are not under the law, we're under grace. And likewise, for our growth in maturity and, uh, and our desire to fulfil the, the good things of God, we are not under the law, but under grace. Our, for our sanctification and our salvation, both those things rely not on the power of the law, that is, on a list of rules and regulations, but rather on the empowerment of the Spirit by the grace of God. But of course, the law still has a purpose. So how should we relate to the law? Well, I want to suggest that there are three, three ways. Uh, two, not so good. One, well, I think what Paul's describing here in chapter 7. Firstly, we could choose to relate to the law as legalists, where we bind ourselves to it and we seek to fulfil every dot and cross every T and dot every I. We seek to fulfil it with all our, uh, our desires. Second, we could give up on that because we know that's not possible and we could become what is called an antinomian, uh, which is uh, someone who is anti-nomos, being the Greek word for law, anti-law, or a libertarian might be another way of uh, describing these people. They, they blame the law for their problems and reject it completely and say, I don't even need to worry about it. They, they run off and I can do whatever I want. Or we can take a third road and be a law-fulfilling free person. That is someone who rejoices in their freedom from the law for justification or for salvation and who seeks to become, and for sanctification, and who in their freedom, having been saved and sanctified by God, choose to tr- seek to fulfil the law in his power. And chapter 7 really is setting the scene for us for the spirit-empowered freedom of fulfill, fulfilling the law uh, that comes in chapter 8. But what we have here in chapter 7 is, is somewhat, uh, can seem a little bit confusing as Paul says he does not do what he wants to do and he does do what he wants to do. Uh, we have here uh, 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 something that's building to chapter 8. It's a message first to legalists, verses 1 to 6, then a message to libertarians, people who want to reject the law entirety in verses 7 to 13. And then it talks in verses 14 to 25 about this inner conflict of those who uh, seek to live their lives under the law. And so we'll have a look at uh, those things as we go. So firstly, verses 1 to 6, Paul writes to the legalists, remembering in chapter 7, he had, sorry, in chapter 6, he's talked about how 
we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now he says, well, in that death and resurrection, you've also died to the law, verse 4. And uh, he gives uh, this example, verses 2 and 3, about how when someone dies, uh, they're released from that law. So the example from marriage. Our union with Christ in his death brings us release from the law. I'll just read to you again from verses 4 to 6. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. You see, we go from bondage to the written code, the law, to the spirit-empowered life, the Christian life, lived serving the risen Christ in the power of the spirit. That's the framework, those two, these, these, these two verses, uh, three verses, four, five and six, for I think understanding correctly what's going on in chapter seven of Romans that there's a, there's a way of bondage to the written code or a way of life in the Spirit. So if we are released from the law by the, by the Spirit through our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, does that mean the law doesn't matter? Well, no. That's what Paul talks about in verses 7 through to 13. To those who would say, well, we have liberty to do whatever we want and we can totally disregard the law of God. Paul says to those people who might be tempted to say something like, the law is actually bad. It's, we've died to it. We, we, it ought to have no place in our lives. Let's totally reject it. And Paul says, shall we say the law is sinful? Certainly not, verse 7. You'll remember that chapter 6, Paul's answering the accusation that grace might lead to sin. And now he's dealing with the accusation about the law being sinful and bringing death. Verse 13, did that which was good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What's Paul saying here? Why does the law still matter? Because, verse 7, it reveals sin. Verse 8, it provokes sin. And verse 9 to 11, it condemns sin. Let's have a look at those. The law matters because it reveals sin. Paul says, I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. When the law came, it showed us it showed Paul and shows us, oh, I shouldn't do that. It reveals sin. But of course, it also provokes sin, like the story of me in the museum or the story we're seeing now uh, in Victoria of, of uh, Bunnings Karen. Have you seen Bunnings Karen? She's uh, this sort of uh, ridiculous woman who's walking into Bunnings um, and 
asserting her human rights um, by not wearing a mask in Bunnings, as if, if that's the worst human right you've got to worry about. Uh, government said wear masks, and she's just gone, tropo, I'll never wear a mask. Sin, verse 8, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every time type of coveting or every type of anti-mask wearing. It reveals sin, it provokes sin, but then it comes and condemns sin. Verse 11, verse, that's in verses 9 to 11, I'll just read verse 11. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death, death being the ultimate punishment for sin. So the law's necessary, right? We need the law, because we need to know what's wrong, uh, and we need to know that God utterly condemns it. But of course, we need something else, because as sinful humans, when we, when we have the law laid out in front of us, we are provoked to sin. And this is the kind of inner conflict that Paul uh, starts to talk about from verses 14 through 25. The law is good in that it reveals and condemns sin, but it is also weak in that it is unable to fix the spiritual problem you and I have of being sinful and unable to achieve all that God requires of us. And Paul describes this battle between knowing the goodness of God and his law and his inability to do what it says because of his sin. And we, we, we heard it when Marie read it, didn't we? I do not do what I want to do, and I want to do what I do not want to do. And of course, the, the, the question is, who is Paul talking about? He obviously uses the word I, but who is he describing? Is he describing himself as he lives in the here and now as the apostle? Or is he describing himself before he came to Christ? Or is he describing someone else entirely? This is a question that uh, occupies the minds of theologians. And, and it's, it's actually quite an important question because the question that you and I ought to have when we read these things is, is this meant to describe my life as a Christian? Or is it describing something else? Well, there are basically three views. It's like the three views, I should write, there's books like three views on whatever. So here's three views on uh, these verses in Romans chapter 7. Firstly, you've got a guy called Douglas Moo, who argues that Paul is looking back from his Christian understanding to the situation of himself and other Jews living under the law of Moses. And he, he decides that this is the, 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 so this is the pre-conversion Paul. And he says that it has to be this because in places like verse 14, Paul describes himself as a slave to sin. And that doesn't seem like a very good description for a Christian, especially given everything else Paul says in Rome. On the other side, we've got Charles Cranfield, who's like one of the great Roman scholars. And he writes 
these verses depict vividly the inner conflict characteristic of the true Christian, a conflict such as is possible only in the man whom the Holy Spirit is active and whose mind has been renewed under the dis- discipline of the gospel. So he argues this is Paul describing his real life here and now, struggling. Well, I don't think either of those are right. And I'm going to go with our good friend, who you've heard me quote a few times in this series, uh, the one and only John Stott, who argues, I believe, convincingly that what we have here is an Old Testament believer. And of course, there were many of those still present in Paul's day as he's writing in Romans, that that we have here a Jew or a God-fearing Greek who uh, loves God, loves the law, but hasn't yet converted to Christianity, hasn't accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And and, and Stott outlines his case. So this person, verse 22, in their inner being, I delight in God's law, right? So they love the law, but they can't achieve it. They can't do what they want to do. Because, verse 14, still slave to sin, verse 23, but I see another law at working within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So it's someone who loves the law, but is still a slave to sin. And therefore, Stott argues, and I agree, can't be the kind of liberated Christian that we read about in chapter 6 and in chapter 8. And of course, as well, if you have a look at chapter 7, there's no mention of the Spirit. You would think the Spirit would come in somewhere here and, and, and pro- provoke repentance or, or empower holy living, but in chapter 7, it's this, it's this self-willed battle of the, the individual with the law and with sin. This is the Old Testament believer, the one who who believes in the law of God but knows nothing of the spirit of God. Paul here painting a picture of the terrible battle of life without the spirit. Going back to verses four to six, of life under the written code, not under the spirit. Well, how does this apply to us? 2,000 years later, not many Old Testament Christians, uh, Old Testament believers still around. Well, I think here we have Paul describing those who love the church, love the Bible, and yet live under the law, not the gospel who are bound to rules and regulations and certain ways of being and doing things, not the newness of freedom through Christ. John Stott describes uh, this kind of present-day Christian as being someone who's like Lazarus. You remember Lazarus was the the guy who, who died and Jesus resuscitated him. 
He emerges from the tomb bound, hand and foot. He's alive, but he's kind of not, he's still in his grave clothes. This is the kind of person that we, we, we might see being described here. Someone who, who kind of gets it, but they, 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 they still haven't experienced true freedom. Now, of course, every Christian struggles with sin. But I think the picture that we have here in Romans chapter 7 is of one who struggles with sin and knows no freedom. And what I've been reflecting on as I seek to understand these verses more clearly is that if we read these parts of Romans 7 and and identify strongly with them, then perhaps, in fact, this is an invitation for us to consider whether we've become a little bit more legalistic than we realise. And that's my own question that I'm, I'm trying to grapple with. Perhaps we've become a bit more focused on our faith as a system for our salvation rather than a relationship with our saviour. That perhaps we've moved from relying on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to external rule following. It's very easy to become a legalistic rule following Christian who says they love the law but who knows none of the power of the Spirit. But what we're going to see as we start digging into Romans 8 is that there is so much more than this kind of battle that we read about here in Romans 7 for the Christian who is united with Christ in his death and so raised to new life in Jesus and who is empowered by the Spirit. So much more for us than a legalistic, self-powered battle with sin that Paul describes in Romans 7. So today, I actually want to leave it with you. I want you to, to, ha- to knowing those options of, of Moo or Cranfield or Stott and, and, and sitting with the text, work out what you think. Because I think all three of those views have merit. I just think the view that it is an Old Testament believer who does not know the power of the Spirit makes the most sense to me. And as you sit with that, and as you wrestle with that, as you think about your own experience, reflect. Have you become too legalistic in your faith? And do you need to continually focus, not on the rules, but on the man Jesus, his love for you, and his call on your life to enter deeper relationship with him in the power of his spirit. Mm